Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Kicking Out at Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and we got an exciting show planned for you this week as we're bringing you another Dave Five Fanny Pack here on Kicking Out at Two. Five random subjects in wrestling history that uh, deserve some attention, may not dedicate an entire show to, but I'm going to throw them all in one recording and uh, present you with what I like to call the Dave Five Fanny Pack. Uh, some subjects we're going to discuss that you may never want to discuss again, some that you've always wanted to talk about, and maybe some you've never heard of before. So uh, this week's uh, Fanny Pack is a doozy, and if you guys got any subjects in wrestling history, past or even present, that you would like for me to discuss and hear my two cents on, then by all means hit us up on social media, both Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two, as well as our Twitter handle at kicking out two, K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T, and the number two. Um, you know, we got all kinds of great stuff going on on our social media. Links to archive shows, debates and discussions, GIFs, memes, uh, videos, polls, all kinds of great stuff, both on Facebook and Twitter. So you can find us on social media there. Give us a like on Facebook. Give us a follow on Twitter. Tell a friend to like us on Facebook. Tell a friend to follow us on Twitter. Whatever you do, just be a part of all the positive retro pro wrestling fun that I like to have, that I like to create with our social media that is kicking out at two. And uh, links to archive shows can also be found on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com, which was the original home of Kicking Out of Two. But the more permanent home uh, of Kicking Out of Two is the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network on Podbean by searching Retromania with a W. You can find Kicking Out of Two along with Hulkamania's Dead, Gaijin Wrestling Radio, Origins of Attitude, uh, you know, so many great shows. Marking out the day's weekend Warriors, which uh, I was a part of with Kobe Nida for one season. Um... All those great shows you can find over there, Retromania with a W. Uh, you can find them on Podbean. You can find them on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and all other podcast platforms available. All right. Um, let, let, let's, let's get down to the nitty-gritty this week. Let's get down to um, our first subject here. Um, a subject that... Uh, was very it was it was a very short-lived concept and i kind of alluded to short-lived concepts um on our the the previous fanny pack when when i discussed short-lived wcw concepts and i left this one out and i didn't mean to but i wanted to touch on it on this fanny pack here it was something that i think was ahead of its time that wcw doesn't get enough credit for for at least trying new things out to get their programming and their brand um, out there on a broader level. And I'm talking about the WCW paper listens uh, when they tried to do internet pay-per-view um, in the late 90s. Um, both the WWF and the WCW were experimenting with the internet. It was a big booming um uh, you know, venture into into our culture and our society. Um, it exploded into in, in, into millions of homes around the world, um, and you know, during this time period, it became a new way for wrestling fans to follow their favorite companies um, via the internet. And WCW wanted to capitalize on that popularity, um, so they uh, they they came up with the idea of running internet exclusive pay per views, except fans paying to actually watch the matches take place would only pay to listen to WCW announcers describing them. It was almost like listening to a sporting event on the radio. Um, so uh, it, it, at the time, I remember it was an interesting concept, um, but it was kind of doomed from the start. Um, you know, technology was still in its infancy um, and it was sketchy at times. Um, it was hard for people to tune in. You would get a lot of buffering. Um, the audio would dip throughout the show. Uh, there would even be some periods of silence. Um, you know, one of the events that took place under this WCW paper listen was the WCW Boston Brawl that took place on January 31st, 1998 from what is now known as the TD Garden, which was formerly known as the Fleet Center uh, in Boston. In the main event, Sting would defeat Hollywood Hogan in a steel cage match um, to the headline that show. We also saw like Luger and the Giant, the Outsiders. Like WCW put their their all into these internet pay-per-views in terms of the match quality. Now, you know, like I said, it it reminded me a lot of like when I used to listen to baseball or even football on the radio, um, which is still a thing um, in professional sports. Uh, but wrestling is is 
in many ways a visual product that you need to see things in order to get invested in the story and the idea of doing an internet pay-per-view and it being radio based um it was a nice try but it was just something that i don't think was really thought out um it was really a, a, a limited time experiment. They did a couple different shows. I think they did one at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, the Forum in Los Angeles. They did big markets um, that they knew that were going to draw very well, especially with the cards that they were presenting. I mean, you, you saw, you know, a lot of the big names from WCW at that time in the in the the, the late '90s on these shows. Um, for a time period when WCW wasn't known for their house show business. And a lot of the big names that were under contract to WCW rarely worked live events and house shows. Um, names like Sting, names like Hogan, names like Goldberg, names like, you know, Hall and Nash and, and Diamond Dallas Page. Like, those guys didn't work every single house show. Um, but in this instance, in these paper listens, in, in order to get people to pay $9.99 on WCW.com, you had to draw them with a big card. Um, and a lot of these cards were big, very pay-per-view quality-like attractions, but you couldn't watch them. Now, allow me to shift this conversation to present day by saying that uh, this is a concept I think that altered and really thought out and planned carefully. I think this could be something that WWE could experiment with on their network when it comes to their pay-per-views or even some of their house shows. Um, you know, watch-alongs are have become a very popular thing, especially in podcasting, not just with wrestling, but with, you know, other entertainment genres that are represented in podcasts, um, whether it be television or movies um, or even some sports. Uh, there are watch-alongs um, of those uh, different genres, and wrestling uh, has capitalized on that. Um, I do a lot of them on this show, which was inspired by my... Um, by my passion for the Conrad Thompson podcasts with Pritchard and Bischoff and Arn Anderson and Shivani and JR, um, you know, those guys have done watch alongs from time to time. And it's just a different way to interact with your audience. I think it's a great idea. I know for, you know, listeners of this show, listeners I've spoken to, um, not many of them do the watch alongs with me. Um, they'll listen, but they won't do the watch alongs just for time purposes. A lot of people listen to podcasts on the go, whether they're driving in the car, you know, if they travel for work, if they're in an airport or, um, if they're, if they're at their office at work. So I know watch alongs, um, might be a little difficult for people to get into, but, um, it's, it's, it's another way to interact. And I think if WWE were to kind of take some of this concept that WCW had created with these paper listens and implemented them into their network and on their pay-per-views, I think it would be a fun interactive way for fans to, to be involved. I know, um, Recently, they had experimented with the, what Netflix was doing uh, with some of their empty arena shows um, and and had webcams set up and with different fans. And you could have like a group of like 10 or more people watch an event take place on WWE Network. Um, I know it's something that they experimented with. Uh, Netflix does that with like a, a like a party option um, to watch a movie or watch a documentary together. Um, it's something that WWE has toyed with. Um, the watch-alongs that they do on their pay-per-views, where they have you know 10, 12, 13, 14 guys um, or gals, and they watch the the WWE pay-per-view that you're currently watching live um, without the audio. Um, and it's like a split screen sort of thing. Um, what if WWE were to take um, the the option of a, a different announced team or a random guest superstar with another announced team that you can use the option of watching the live pay-per-view by... You know, let's say, for instance, there's a, a SummerSlam and you have your your normal um your normal announced teams for raw and smackdown you know tom phillips jerry lull or michael cole Corey graves what if you were to have the option with us with a certain level of subscription on the wwe network to do the watch along option with a guest hall of famer or a guest 
you know, superstar. Um, let's say, for instance, if they were to do um, someone on the current roster and a legend along with, let's say, a Michael Cole, if, if he weren't available for the regular broadcast, or if they maybe, you know, had him do the watch-alongs only, or if you did somebody like Amaro Ronaldo from NXT with, like, a Seth Rollins and... Um, you know, uh, a Shawn Michaels, okay? Just, you know, and you can have that option of having those two or three guys as your commentary team with, you know, having a certain um, subscription to the WWE Network because I know that they've been toying with the idea of doing a tiered network. Um, I think kind of having that pay-per-view listen model and adapting it visually to, you know, th their network, I think is something... There's the prospects of it, I think, um, are endless. And I think it's something that they could explore. But I think WCW deserves credit for at least trying this out and trying to get people to engage in their product in a different way. You know, for $9.99, you could walk, you could listen to this whole show. Um, and yes, technology wasn't great and they were just experimenting and it was a short lived, um, concept but it was no different than listening to professional sports on the radio in your car or sitting in your backyard with your with your your boombox radio listening to a ball game um and i and i i I give WCW kudos for at least making the attempt to try and engage their audience in a different manner all right let's talk about something else that uh, I couldn't dedicate a whole show to and it's actually an, another short-lived experiment that not only WCW had um, had uh, taken on but also TNA and AEW currently uh, implements this as a part of the program and I'm talking about a ranking system in wrestling like a top 10 or a top 5 ranking system um, you know, going back and, and doing research on this particular subject, um, I didn't really see many positives that had come out of this ranking system in wrestling history. Um, WCW implemented it in the early 90s, um, mainly during the, um, the, the the Bill Watts era of uh, WCW, where there was a top 10 rankings for like heavyweights and top 10 for the lightweights and top 10 for the tag teams and um, or a top five um, and it would determine like who would be in line for a title shot um, and there were times where there was inconsistency in the in the the, the ranking system um, random guys would get you know, put into a top five or a top 10 that you hardly saw on TV, but if they want a match, all of a sudden they're in the rankings. Um, here's a, here's an instance where, you know, Ravishing Rick Rude at the time was the WCW United States champion. And on television, they acknowledged that the WCW United States champion was, um, was uh, the number one contender for the the automatic number one contender for the WCW Heavyweight Championship, and so um, the uh, that should automatically move them up the ranks. But sometimes Rick Rude would be ranked at like number three, but someone who you know wasn't the champion, the United States champion, would be ahead of him. And there was a, there was a case where. Um, Rick Rude was the United States champion. I believe he was ranked second. And um, he was the next one in line to get an opportunity at the WCW title. And that was when they did the storyline where Ron Simmons won the name. Uh, where his name was picked out of the hat to face Vader, which resulted in Ron Simmons defeating Vader to become the world heavyweight champion. Now, um, at the time... And even looking back on it, when you see that on the surface, it doesn't really make sense. But WCW at least tried to keep some continuity and capitalize on Rick Rude's gripe with not getting a title shot by pairing up him up with Ron Simmons. Now, eventually they didn't get to that match because Rude was injured and they couldn't do Ron Simmons and Rick Rude for the world title at, at the 1992 Starcade event. They had to go a different route and they had to, you know, Rick Rude was hurt. But, um... You know, for me, when it when it came to WCW's attempt at it as a kid, I treat especially during the Bill Watts era, where a lot of his a lot of the presentation of the programming was treated like it was a a sport, and 
Therefore, um, as a kid, when I remember watching it, I took the ranking system somewhat seriously. Not my, you know, nine-year-old brain thinking, oh, well, so-and-so shouldn't be in the top 10 because he, you know, he didn't win X amount of matches, you know? Um, I didn't think like that. I just thought like, oh, my favorites are in. Ooh, Sting's in. Ooh, Flying Brian's in there. Ooh, uh, you know... British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith is in there. You know what I mean? So I didn't really have that thought process of like who earned the opportunity to be in the, the, the rankings, you know, the, the top five or the top ten or whatever. Um, but I feel like WCW had made some attempts at it. There was some consistency to it. But then, you know, a, a lot of different factors played into why it didn't work out. Guys were getting injured. Um, sometimes the way that WCW was run and especially their production, sometimes they would, you know, film television out of order and they would air the wrong programming. Um, and they would be giving away the spoiler results that were supposed to be given away, you know, a few weeks prior. Um, so, I mean, that played a factor into why it wasn't successful. I think also too, that like, like most concepts in WCW, there was no real leader. There was nobody to direct the ship um, for a long period of time um, before Eric Bischoff came in uh, and, and there was a little bit more of a vision. Uh, a lot of guys that were in charge at that time before Bischoff didn't really have that vision. And even though Watts made several attempts to legitimize the programming by implementing something like this, like a ranking system, there were a lot of times where things just didn't make sense. You know, um, this guy, you know, the, the, the guy at the number five spot jumps ahead of the guy at the number three spot based on winning a match, but the number three spot guy didn't lose any matches. So why is he losing his spot you know what i mean like there was just a lot of inconsistencies in that that uh ranking system at the time for wcw um but i think that if they had stayed on course and there was there wasn't so many different factors i think that there was potential for it to to have an effect positively on the programming um if there weren't any injuries if there wasn't any issues within management and who was leading um i think it could have been something that people got behind um because when they were consistent with it and it was a focal point of programming, people were into it. The people that were watching WCW were into it. I know as a kid, I was. I was excited to see how far Sting was going to move up the ladder, how far Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was going to move up the ladder, Nikita Koloff, those guys, you know, um, especially during that time period in late 91, early 92 of WCW. Um, TNA would adopt this, uh, th this concept in uh, 2007, 2008, and... I, you know, TNA gets a bad rap for being the company that took WWE's leftovers, so to speak, and put them on their programming. And I think that that's an unfair um, assessment of them as a company. You know, they made efforts to try and stand out and be different so that people wouldn't compare them to WWE, even though they didn't do themselves any favors from time to time. They made solid efforts to to stand out and be different so that there weren't those WWE comparisons like the six-sided ring. Um, as as most guys in the business would say, how dangerous it is, it is to wrestle in that ring because it's just, there's because of the way the ring is configured and constructed, um, it made for some exciting programming, especially with a lot of those X Division matches and those Ultimate X matches and the six sides of steel. Um, you know, King of the Mountain was another concept. It was like that reverse ladder match with the penalty box. That was a fun little gimmick. Um, but uh, the ranking system in TNA, I felt, had a strong start, and they really made a good effort. And I think once um, Hogan and Bischoff came on board and kind of changed the direction of the creative and along with, you know, Jeff Jarrett and Dixie Carter and, you know, so many cooks in the kitchen, that ranking system kind of got thrown out the window because um, there was a top 10 males ranking system. And I remember on a number of occasions, um, you know, uh, there would be matches or scenarios where guys would, um, would have, um, you know, matches with each other to determine, you know, taking another person's spot in the ranking. So if you were at number eight and the other guy was at number three and you beat the number three guy at number eight, you swap out, you know, um, it's, it was kind of like the, um, the, the rankings in college sports, you know, if you were a unranked team that defeated a top, you know, five ranked team in college football or college basketball, um, then you were all of a sudden in the top 25 poll, um, 
And, and TNA would do stuff like that. I remember there was a particular storyline with Kurt Angle um, in TNA where he was a babyface, and uh, T and he he wanted to earn his way back into the. He wanted to embrace and ingratiate himself to the fans because he was once a heel and he had done a, b a bunch of bad shit to really piss off the audience and other guys in the locker room and he was trying to prove his worth as a as a competitor and as someone in the locker room so he wanted to slowly move his way up the ranks of tna and by doing that um he would have to defeat guys in the rankings. And at one point he wasn't ranked. And then he wrestled like a Christopher Daniels or like a Frankie Kazarian. And then, you know, he would, he would be in those matches and he would go on to defeat some of those guys. And he would get up in the rankings and eventually he would make it to like the top two or the top three. Um, I thought that kind of stuff was really cool added a, a presentation of athleticism and sport to the product it didn't make it feel so pro wrestling um and it made tna stand out and gave them you know the opportunity to be different than wwe and i think once ww or uh, bischoff and hogan and all those you know caught dixie and russo and jeff Jarrett, and once all the cooks were in the kitchen and they couldn't decide on what was going to be put on the menu the ranking system in TNA kind of fell to the wayside, and I really feel that it was one of their better attempts at trying to make um, make them stand out. And it's and it's very similar to what WCW went through with their attempt at a ranking system. You know, the the leadership there, even though there was dictatorship amongst you know the the Bill Watts regime, there were a lot of differences between him and other members of management that affected the creative and affected the product and it affected the the consistency of the ranking system in their presentation. Uh, now, as far as AEW goes, they've brought it back where they, you know, I like the idea of them, you know, posting guys' records on the lower third when the guys come out to the ring um, on the graphic and they do their, their tag team record or their overall record or their, their uh, you know, their, their singles record. Um, I like that sort of stuff. Um, and they've been keeping consistent with putting guys, you know, keeping everyone's records um you know, intact, you know, how many wins, how many losses guys have. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they're still toying with the idea of the rankings. I think it's like a work in progress for them because there was an instance in one of the earlier episodes of Dynamite where um, Scorpio Sky and Frankie Kazarian, who were the AEW World Tag Team Champions, automatically uh, had a... Um, uh, a tag team title defense against Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara from the inner circle. Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara weren't a tag team in AEW. They weren't even in the rankings of the tag team division in AEW. And they all of a sudden earned a title shot. That just didn't make sense to me. That totally, you know, that totally, you know, skipped over the concept of the ranking system. Or when Scorpio Sky pinned Jericho in that match, in the tag team match to retain the titles, all of a sudden that earned him a title shot ahead of the five other guys that were in the the the, the top five rankings in the AEW Heavyweight Title Division. That that got him a shot over Omega, over Moxley, over Cody, over um, uh, Pac, uh, the former Neville. I mean, it it just didn't it didn't make sense to me, and I think that they realized that there was some that there was some chinks in the armor and they've been doing a pretty good job of taking the ranking system and um, being more consistent with it, tighter on, on some of the restrictions and, and the credentials and the rules behind it. Um, now, could a ranking system work in WWE programming? It could if you stick with it. And that's, I think, the whole point of this, is that a ranking system in wrestling, whether it's a top five or a top ten for, you know, certain, whether it's a tag team division or a women's division or a heavyweight division, um, the, uh, the ranking system could work if you stick with it if you stay within the rules but of course you have to have contingency plans in place if a guy is injured or if someone is no longer with the company or you know if if something greater happens um if you're going to really stick with the concept um it's one of those things that's kind of hard to keep up with and so i think if you if if you really pay close attention to it and keep with the continuity of the concept and you don't insult the, the audience's intelligence, I think it's something that could work. Uh, but I don't think it's something that WWE would would really 
address maybe in their 205 live show or maybe even on you know one of the nxt shows you know i think that audience would appreciate it more but people that watch raw and smackdown uh, i don't think that they would really take to it um like some of the other fans like the other like the the diehard nxt fans and the 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 underground 205 live fans that watch that show still on the network so um it's a, it's a concept that has to be carefully orchestrated and um, done right and there's a lot of factors and variables that could you know really affect um, that concept uh, you know and, and maintaining that concept as a part of your presentation on the programming so that's why I think that whether it's good whether it's bad it, it's 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 a sink or swim kind of scenario and it, it it's it's you just got to stick with it and you got to have a plan in place and you got to understand all the variables that could affect um, why it wouldn't work. So maybe it's better off that they don't have something like that. But so far, AEW has done a pretty good job of keeping track of it with a few you know, instances where they didn't. Um, but uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how that ranking system continues to evolve uh, in AEW uh, moving forward. And while we're on the subject of uh, rankings and continuity and, and, and athletic presentation, um, one subject I'd like to bring up is uh, the advent of the King of the Ring tournament. Um, the King of the Ring tournament uh, was something that WWE had um, implemented on a live event level uh, in, the, in the 80s and eventually became a pay-per-view in the 90s uh beginning in 1993 where they would hold a eight-man tournament one night to determine the king of the ring um now um i think it's i think it's something interesting to address here because um especially in today's day and age at least in the last several years when WWE has um, implemented tournaments and they've had the right guys in tournaments, people have gotten into them. You know, the Mae Young Classic, the Cruiserweight Classic, um, even the most recent King of the Ring tournament when Baron Corbin won. Um, people were into the, the, the evolution of the tournament. And I think with the right amount of guys and or gals, um, I think a King of the Ring or even a Queen of the Ring tournament for the females could be something that could be a traditional thing on WWE programming. Um, the pros and cons of these tournaments is that, you know, let, let's go with the pros, okay? It's an opportunity for some talent to show things that they haven't been able to showcase to an audience. Um, you you can kind of get some fresh matchups and it's, it's, a, it's somewhat of a litmus test to uh to see where a talent stands in the eyes of the fans um you know for instance uh you know chad gable um chad gable kind of you know was on his own and he wasn't really doing much and the series of matches he was having in the tournament and with his underdog kind of persona um eventually built up to the point where people wanted to see him win the king of the ring and defeat baron corbin in the finals and uh you know following those match following that match they would have a, a couple matches on television that you know the audience really had gotten into and so the the, the pros of of having a tournament like this is to kind of see where some of these talents stand um you know where they stand athletically and and their in-ring presentation but you know can they put it all together with a character and with the audience as well um and you know chad gable at least in recent memory on wwe programming you know he had the audience behind him now um it helped that he had a strong heel in a baron corbin who was hated by the audience to oppose him but um, it's 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 a it's a sink or swim scenario for some talents to really show what they got and to see if they can you know if you're kind of in a holding pattern or in a lull period, you are um, you the a tournament like a king of the ring could be something that gets you noticed even if you don't win it but you have a a. a a superb performance with another guy um, or gal. It's something that gets you noticed and, and keeps an eye out, not only just with the fans, but with management as well as, okay, we got something here with this person. Let's, let, let's explore this a little more. Um, the cons of a tournament like this is the way you position a tournament, the way you, you, you book a tournament. Um, 
if you put some of the heavy favorites into these tournaments, um, you know, big names, it on the surface, on paper, it adds some legitimacy and credibility to the tournament. It's like, ooh, like this is an all-star ensemble. But you also pigeonhole yourself into a situation where, um, you know, if you have too many guys that you have um, an interest in, in terms from a management standpoint, then how do you get them, you know, out of, you know, how do you, how do you further advance them whether they win or lose in this tournament? What what happens? What's following this? You know, like for instance, you had Andrade and Drew McIntyre in the most recent King of the Ring tournament. Those two were my favorites to win it, and both of them were eliminated like in short fashion. Um, now McIntyre bounced back and would eventually win the Royal Rumble, and Andrade has bounced back in his rivalry with Rey Mysterio. So maybe losing King of the Ring didn't do much. Um, for them to hurt their stance with with myself as a fan but uh it's an instance where um you know kind of booking the obvious might hurt that talent you know like booking them into a tournament like this you know fans expectations would be oh this guy's gonna win it and then when they don't they fall short maybe they fall out of favor um another con as to why these tournaments haven't really sustained any kind of uh, longevity is the fact that um, some fans don't have the attention span to see a, a tournament play out in an entire evening. Like, you know, um, an eight-man tournament, like when they used to do the eight-man tournaments on these King of the Ring pay-per-views. Um, sometimes they're too long of an evening. Um, that's why sometimes they had dumbed it down to, like, the final four would take place at the King of the Ring, but the qualifying matches and the tournament matches would take place, you know, on programming leading up to the pay-per-view. Um, you know, even when they've brought these King of the Ring tournament backs you know, tournaments back on Raw and SmackDown, they've spread them out over the course of a few weeks so that they don't, overload one episode or two episodes of just strictly tournament matches um it's a it's a it's a reason also why we saw like the cruiserweight classic or the may young classic um spread out over the course of several weeks um in clusters on the wwe network um and you know, now we're in a, when it comes to viewing content, we're in a binge type of culture where, you know, we, if, if something catches on, we can't get enough. We got to watch it till the very end. And WWE kind of took that Netflix approach with some of these tournaments, but at the same time, they, they also, you know, scaled back a little bit. Um, I think on the most me recent May Young tournament where they only like offered like two or three episodes at a time and it was like a 12 or 13 episode um season i guess you could say um so there's 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 the attention span of the audience too that i think um presents uh, uh, some difficulty when it comes to these tournaments um can the king of the ring come back in a pay-per-view form i don't know i think for nostalgia purposes yes but at the same time um you really gotta I feel like if you were to bring it back in pay-per-view form you gotta dedicate the show to that you can't add a, a title match that has nothing to do with the tournament or some undercard matches if you're gonna do a tournament and you're gonna dedicate then dedicate it to to that show you know don't make it an afterthought the king of the ring eventually in pay-per-view form the tournament would be an afterthought because you had other undercard matches like for instance the 1998 king of the ring the finals were the rock and ken shamrock they were on third to last before after that was the infamous undertaker mankind hell in the cell match and then the first blood match with austin and kane for the title um so i mean the, the tournament finals become an afterthought um so I feel like if you were to put it in like a an extended show, like a pay-per-view, you would have to really dedicate that entire show to it. And like I said, there's that difficulty of the audience's attention span. Do people want to see that sort of thing? Some yes, some no. I mean, it's it's kind of a 50-50 crapshoot. Um, I think one of the things that, um, or two points that I'd like to make regarding this, regarding you know King of the Ring tournaments, is that um, there needs to be something with this concept in order to sustain a shelf life in WWE. Um, 
you know, I feel like when it comes to them choosing King of the Ring winners in years past, they've just kind of gone by like a case-by-case -case basis. And each guy has had a different individual end game. Um, you know, what's the end game for the winner? Is it to make them a major player? Is it to, you know further see if they have something there more with this king of the ring gimmick is it something to get people to care about them because there have been instances where there have been king of the rings that have just kind of fallen flat um where it hasn't benefited certain guys you know for instance uh mabel mabel won it in 1995 um didn't really do much for him um it added something to his heel persona as king mabel but it didn't really catapult him to that next level same thing with badass billy gunn mr ass people looked at him and thought he's got fucking star written all over him and it didn't happen for him it just didn't um and so you know the sheamus was a king of the ring winner at one point what did that do for him i mean it just added another notch on his belt but it didn't really move him up the ranks. He was already the WWF champ or the WWE champion before he even won the King of the Ring. He was already a main event guy. Um, Wade Barrett was the, the one of the most recent King of the Rings in 2015. Um, what did that do? It just made him look silly with a crown on, you know? Um, so what's the end game for a King of the Ring winner? Are you... Are you looking to see if there's something there with that person? Or are you looking to make that person a major player moving up the ranks? And that's what needs to be addressed when it comes to these. And I think also what needs to be addressed too is what else does what what else does this concept need to sustain shelf life? I think I think treating it like a sport, like an athletic presentation, like a major tournament, like other professional sports, I think would help it. I think what would also help it is not trying to adopt the King of the Ring winner as like a king. You know, I think in some cases it's worked, but I think you kind of got to stray away from that. You know, Baron Corbin, he's now King Corbin. And although he looks pretty fucking silly with that crown on, he's made it work for himself. And some guys make it work. You know, Booker T was kind of floundering in WWE. when, But when he became King Booker, he was, you know, it, it, it really catapulted him to make him a major player. Um, you know, within the main event ranks of, of SmackDown at the time. So I feel like if you kind of take away the element of, oh, you won the King of the Rings, so now you're the king of the WWE, I think you kind of got to, I think you have to ditch that. I think you have to ditch that approach. Um, what I did like about the King of the Ring concept that was very short-lived was the fact that um, it was in 2001 when Edge uh, defeated Kurt Angle in the finals of that King of the Ring. He won a trophy that, you know, resembled the Stanley Cup, NHL's, uh, you know, prized possession. Um, if you brought that back in, like, trophy form, like you're the King of the Ring and here's your big trophy, it's like a Stanley Cup, I think that would be cool. I think that would kind of add some legitimacy and credibility. You don't need a crown and you don't need a scepter and a robe. I mean, maybe you... Maybe you, you the guy that wins the match, he gets on the podium and he sits in the throne and he wears the crown and the cape, but he holds the trophy up. But, you know, it's just a one-time thing for, like, picture purposes, you know. In, in the same vein that, like, uh, you know, somebody that wins a Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals, like, they wear, like, the championship hat and the T-shirt that eventually fans could buy the next day at the, all the, the retail stores. Um, maybe it's just one of those scenarios where it's like a celebration. You put the crown and the robe on, you take your pictures, you have that moment holding up the trophy, but then moving forward, you don't keep wearing the crown, you know. Steve Austin didn't wear the crown. Triple H didn't wear the crown. Um... You know, uh, who else didn't wear the crown? Shamrock didn't wear the crown when he won it. Same thing with Billy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, these guys didn't adopt a king persona. And I think becoming the king of the ring winner of the tournament, I think you need to get away from adopting some king persona and just, like, give them a trophy. And I think that's what could help alter and tweak the king of the ring format. Um like I said, could it survive in pay-per-view form if you dedicate a show to the tournament and not making that tournament an afterthought? But at the same time, you also run the risk of, you know, fans' attention spans um, being short because it's a tournament. Because some people don't really dig tournaments, um, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, 
you know, pro wrestling. I mean, I wasn't the biggest fan of the WrestleMania 4 tournament. I certainly wasn't. I thought it was long and boring. Now, there were 16 guys. Um, usually, these King of the Ring tournaments are like eight men, maybe 16 sometimes. But they've also spread that out over the course of weeks of programming. So, I think just some of those little small alterations could make the King of the Ring tournament um, uh, a viable property of wwe if they wanted to make it you know a regular thing moving forward um let's talk about another subject here that probably many people don't remember and if you do you probably won't want to talk about it ever again um i'm talking about the white hummer angle from wcw in the summer of 1999 um there was an instance on an episode i believe it was on thunder it was either on thunder or nitro where um, Kevin Nash was lured into a limousine by uh, Miss Madness, uh, Gorgeous George and Medusa, who were the valets for the Macho Man Randy Savage. And uh, when they had exited the limousine, um, Randy Savage was driving that limousine, and Randy Savage would end up uh, parking it, and a white Hummer would come out of nowhere and ram the, their, that vehicle into the limousine, further injuring Kevin Nash. And there was a mystery for a long time as to who was the driver of the white Hummer. Um, it was something that was addressed early on, following the 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 scene where the hummer rammed into the limo but then it just kind of like faded away and it really wasn't touched upon again um many had suggested that it was sid who was the driver because it would be not long after that where sid would return to wcw and debut as savage's bodyguard um and like i said it was just kind of left you know to be you know i would say paused until they could figure out the solution um and then eventually it would be revealed on the april 10th 2000 nitro reboot when bischoff and russo had joined forces both on screen and behind the camera that eric bischoff was the infamous driver of the white hummers he took the white hummer um and rammed it into hulk hogan's limo uh further um amplifying their storyline moving forward on wcw programming so um that's what we got with the White Hummer, but uh, what could have been done to to make it a, a focal point of storylines? Well, you could have continued with it if you had a plan and you and, and and an end game for it. It could have been something that I think would have been you know a very good who done it type storyline. Um, later on in the year. Later on that year in 1999, WWF did something similar when they had Who Ran Over Austin at Survivor Series, and Austin was out off TV for a while because of a neck injury, and um, they kind of you know had that as the hook to when Austin came back. Um, they had plenty of time to, to to figure out a plan as to who could have been the driver or who you know who you know was behind the attack um i talked about it on the on a recent day five fanny pack when i talked about sting and his heel turn and how he really wasn't um he really wasn't into the prospects of him being a heel in wcw what if him being the driver of the white hummer and being like randy savage's like executioner hitman style um persona um well, what if, what if he added, you know, the driver of the white Hummer to that? You know, the color scheme, Sting wore black and white. He was the crow. I mean, it, 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 I think it could have added more heat to his persona um, when he would eventually turn and be, you know, aligned with Lex Luger and win the world title at that fall brawl. I think it's something that could have been, um, could have been explored. Um, you know, for a while after this white Hummer angle um took place and like i said when it wasn't really addressed on television um i'm surprised this was an opportunity that vince russo didn't really jump on um in terms of using that story as his own uh and, and him coming up with his own alternate ending during his small run in wcw in the fall of 99 um i could have pictured the the white hummer being a a part of the the rebirth of the nwo 2000 maybe it would have been bret hart maybe bret hart would have been the limo driver um 
if you recall, if you go back, the real diehard WCW fans that listen to this podcast, if you go back, Bret Hart, um, before his brother had died, they were in the early stages of um, developing a rivalry between him and Kevin Nash. As a matter of fact, they were to have a match on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And I believe when Bret Hart was flying to Los Angeles to film that angle with Kevin Nash was when he found out that his brother... Um, had passed away due to that tragic accident at the WWF pay-per-view. Um, but what if you, you know, what, what if you inserted Brett into that role as the limo, as the, the Hummer driver into Kevin Nash's limo, um, macho man hiring Bret Hart to, to do his dirty work. Um, that could have kind of stayed with the continuity. Um, or maybe it would be revealed, you know, later, um, towards the end of 1999 when the nwo was re when it was nwo silver and black um scott steiner could have been the limo driver i mean scott steiner was on and off programming and he wasn't a he he wasn't a regular on wcw programming because of his injuries but maybe that's how they would have introduced him into the nwo as the as the hummer driver you know the white hummer comes out and it nails goldberg's limo and goldberg's in it and steiner appears and the nwo appears and it was all a big plan all along um on the other end it wouldn't have made sense because kevin nash was the guy in that limo um when the hummer drove in so it really wouldn't make sense that nash would have set this whole thing up to fool who you know what I mean? Um, but uh, it could be a case or a scenario where I think there were a number of different options they could have gone with, but they just didn't have a plan. It was something to try and get eyeballs on the screen. And I felt like it was a, a failed experiment that had some potential because even as a teenager watching these nitros, I would say to myself, why isn't Nash trying to figure out who ran him over with the Hummer? Why hasn't he, you know, uh, tried to... Uh, tried to solve that mystery and it it was just baffling to me because i thought like that mystery of who was the driver i think really could have cooked up some some good possibilities like i said russo could have adopted it eventually they i'll give wcw credit they 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 ended it with bischoff being the driver um just so that they could you know kind of end that mystery of fans wondering well who was the driver of the hummer um I'll give them that, but I mean, I think there were some good opportunities for some guys to um, to to be put in that role to either further add to their stock in in in, in the programming at the time. Um, like I said, Bret Hart would have been a good example because Bret Hart was in the middle of a storyline with Kevin Nash, um, Sting. Um, you know, maybe that would have been the part of his heel turn. You know, if I I talked about it a little bit, Luger was the one that was stirring the drink up uh, in the storyline with Sting and Hogan in the fall of 99. He accused Hogan of being the, the, the Hummer driver. What if it was Sting that was the Hummer driver all along? Maybe, maybe a part of... Um, of uh whatchamacallit um the, their plan and and turning sting heel was for him to reveal that he was the hummer driver um which would result maybe in the return of kevin nash who at that time was not on programming nash comes back and finds out oh you were in on this all along okay all right now we got something to you know now we got something to beef over um but like I said, failed experiment, no continuity, no end game, and it just didn't uh, it, it it didn't pan out the way I would have hoped as a fan. And the last and certainly not least uh, subject that I wanted to talk about, probably something that um, uh, many of you uh, forgot about and are probably going to be upset that I've even brought it up in the first place. But uh, I'm talking about the. The, the time that Diamond Dallas Page made his debut in the WWE and he was revealed as the Undertaker stalker. Yeah, um, that wasn't a failed WCW experiment. That was a failed WWE experiment. Um, you know, um, 2001 was an interesting time in wrestling in general because WWF was really the only game in town on a mainstream level. They had bought WCW. They had purchased the assets to ECW after ECW had shut down. Um, and so they were, you know, trying to 
they were trying to figure some things out and they wanted to capitalize on the 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 name value that wcw still had even though there wasn't much and they wanted to restore it um with their version of the invasion storyline which is a subject that i will probably talk at great length someday on a future podcast um and part of doing that was uh, introducing Diamond Dallas Page, who was one of the very few top names in WCW that took the 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 buyout. Um, WWF uh, at the time um, bought out his contract, and he came in at a reduced rate because he wanted to contribute and he wanted to be a part of the WWF, and that was his dream, et cetera, et cetera. And there were. Um, there were these vignettes that would air on WWF programming of a guy with like a very altered, distorted voice with one of those like voice recording distorters um, and, you know, hidden camera footage of of this person um, following The Undertaker's wife. And I thought the lead up to it was really good. Like it just had this like creepy element to it and something that like I felt um, had some had some. There was a lot of intrigue in it, at least for me, um, you know, with the I'm watching you, Sarah. And, you know, the, the you see the image of her leaving the grocery store, the image of, you know, her and Undertaker, you know, out in their backyard and or him getting or her getting out of the, the swimming pool in their backyard or riding on their ATVs. Like all that stuff, I thought was just really good production and a really good build up. And there was some intrigue to it. And um then in just a very like matter of fact manner um they had the stalker appear at the king of the ring uh pay-per-view in 2001 and when ddp pulled that mask off yeah there was that initial shock that he was the stalker it's like oh my god diamond dallas page from wcw but then after um after that that wore off pretty quickly um he just became ddp just became a regular member of the roster he would eventually be a part of you know the wcw faction with shane mcmahon he was one of the 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 leaders of that group um early on and uh i think right after pretty much like i think after the point where like Undertaker had come out to confront him and he they got into a fist fight and he kind of got the best of ddp that was when like we all kind of knew that this isn't going to work because um, I felt like there needed to be after the reveal there need DP needed to be presented like a strong figure um, because he was this stalker. Um, why was he stalking Undertaker's wife? Well, he just kind of had an obsession with her, but I felt like even the reason behind that still wasn't good enough. Um, the, the the fact that he was tied to Shane McMahon and the eventual WCW faction wasn't even really an excuse as to why he was stalking The Undertaker. That wasn't even a part of WCW's takeover plan on WWF programming. So it was just from the start, it uh, up until after the reveal, that's when things just kind of went downhill. Um, and I think most people that remember Diamond Dallas Page at that time as a legend in WCW with the diamond cutter and what he did, you know, in, in, in his rise to the top, you know, against the NWO and his runs as the champion. That's the Diamond Dallas Page people wanted to remember. That's the Diamond Dallas Page people wanted to accept. And um, seeing him as like this evil, creepy stalker that WWF had created, I think was also another reason why this didn't work in fans' mind, because they looked at Diamond Dallas Page as, you know, the, the, the working man's champion, as he had presented himself in WCW. And so um, it was a case where, um, the, the, in theory, the concept was kind of cool. I dug it, but it, it was the wrong guy. And it just got worse. You know, they didn't even make DDP a credible threat to Undertaker by that point. Um, you know, the, the countless matches that they would have in the interactions on TV where Undertaker would pretty much get the best of them and, and have his way with them. Um, they inserted Kane into the mix, on, on, you know, to, to side with Undertaker. DDP had Canyon. Both of them had a, a relationship on WCW programming that transferred over to WWE, WWF at the time. And uh, 
the Undertaker and Kane just made those two guys look silly and the whole thing was just made to look silly and many have said that you know um history is written by the winners and that was a prime example of Vince McMahon management WWF whatever whoever made that call that you know that we're going to show you why we won the war um and that hurt Diamond Dallas Page's stock towards the tail end of his career um in my opinion um now as far as an alternative i was really hoping it was raven and i've talked about this before on other shows but i thought that raven had so much potential to have this like dark figure of a character on wwf programming that i thought like raven and like a cult or a flock would be like perfect against undertaker and maybe that's how you would kind of reintroduce maybe raven and his his cult and this dark kind of flock of flunkies i guess you could say or misfits were to have been the impetus for the undertaker to return to his old ways as the dead man uh, maybe Raven stalking Sarah would have been the start of that. And when it was Diamond Dallas Page, I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's kind of cool. But then after that, it just kind of went for me. And um, that's where I thought that, um, you know, when it came to DDP as the stalker, um, it just, it, right out of the gate, it, it, it didn't work for him. Um, does it hurt his legacy? No, because most people remember Diamond, most people... Most fans, casual fans, forget that Diamond Dallas Page was the stalker in the in the early parts of the Invasion storyline. People remember, you know, Diamond Cutter, Self High Five, DDP is the three-time, three-time, three-time WCW Heavyweight Champion, you know, with his wife at the time, Kimberly, and, and all the things that DDP um, accomplished to build his legacy in WCW. Um, would I have liked to have seen him have a better um, run in WWF? Absolutely. Um, and I think we were starting to see that when he was doing the positively page character where he was like overly positive and it was getting over with the audience. And he had that WrestleMania moment against Christian and WrestleMania 18 and uh, injuries would force him to step out of the ring and he was no longer able to compete. Um, he would eventually get a run with Raven and TNA for a short period of time in, in, in 2004 and 2005. Um, we saw some of that with DDP, which was kind of cool, seeing him back in the ring. Um, he could still go. He was still over. People still loved him. But um, his, you know, his days as the stalker were in the rear view, and I was glad to see that you know, he kind of got to end his career on a positive note. He had a cameo in the Andre the Giant Battle Royal a few years ago at WrestleMania. He was involved um, you know, with Cody and the stuff that Cody's been doing with AEW. He's made appearances on the network. Uh, but the the biggest part of his legacy, I think, personally, is is not what he did in his professional wrestling career, but what he did to help Scott Hall and Jake the Snake Roberts with his DDP yoga program. I think um, that's where he's really going to be remembered, and that's what he's been really uh, making a name for himself with um, over the last uh, several years with this DDP yoga program. I got the DDP yoga, and I've done it a few times, and it's a kick-ass workout. Um, I need to be a little bit more consistent with it, especially during this time of quarantine. But, uh, you know, um, I think DDP is reestablishing himself and using implements, uh, you know, implementing some of his wrestling persona into his his yoga philosophy um and his you know health and nutrition brand that he is building with the ddp yoga program but uh you know the 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 days as the stalker of of the the alliance storyline in wwf are far behind him but uh, i thought it would have been nice to address that just because um it was one of those opportunities, I think, for DDP as a person was squandered uh, because of he was a victim of circumstance um, with the, the invasion storyline and just the way that they had positioned him. Uh, I, I didn't think someone of a, a caliber of his talent deserved that. So uh, that's why it was it was included in this week's fanny pack. And uh, that's going to do it this week here on Kicking Out at 2 for another day five fanny pack um, next week. Next week, we are going to have a special request. That's right. Next week, we're going to we're going to we're going to bring you a uh, a watch party. Um, recently on social media, I had 
went to all of you and said, anybody got any requests? Is there a show you want me to watch? Is there a topic you want me to cover? By all means, slide in my DMs. And uh, Mike Ferrara, uh, a fan of the show, um, longtime listener, uh, reached out and wanted me to do um, the King of the Ring 1993 pay-per-view. Now, um, unfortunately, because we're in the middle of a self-isolation period at the time of this recording, um, that I'm not entertaining guests to come over and, and be my co-host but uh, i reached out to mike and i said is there anything else you want me to cover that's a little bit shorter and mike had said that he wanted me to cover the very first episode of monday night raw from january the 11th 1993 so mike you are going to get your wish next week here on kicking out of twos i'm going to watch that episode of monday night raw from start to finish um, on the ww network and uh, hopefully you'll be able to join us and watch along for him so um, that's that for next week. Um, and with that being said, I think it is about that time that we put this show officially down for the three count. And we will see you all next week. <laughs>